You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 72. This week, I would like to thank Christopher for his donation to the show through PayPal. Thank you, Christopher. I would also like to say that the podcast is now available on Android through the Google Play Store. It's a new thing that Google's doing. So if you'd prefer to listen to me through that, you can now. Hopefully it's available by the time uh, this show goes up. I think it will be. We'll see. See how fast Google is. Last week, we discussed the large April attack that the Germans launched against the French positions all along the front, with most of the gains occurring on the West Bank, where finally, finally, they captured La Homme. This week, we will move forward to May, and the attacks launched by both sides during the month. In the end, May would be catastrophically deadly for all involved. After covering the events of May, we will then cover one of the most harrowing events of the entire campaign fall of Fort Vaux, which occurred in June. It is an important event for sure, but it is more than that because of the events that occurred and the resistance of the French soldiers inside the fort, well beyond the normal limits of resistance. There was an endless mountain of suffering at Verdun, but even in that mountain, Vaux still stands out as this extreme case. Late in April, a new commander came on the scene at Verdun, General Max von Gollwitz. Von Gollwitz had made a name for himself as an artillery commander during the conquest of Serbia, and he was now given command of the German troops on the West Bank. When he arrived, he took a few days to evaluate the situation and came to roughly the same conclusion as everybody else. Code 304 had to be captured, and it had to be captured like yesterday. To accomplish this goal, he was going to concentrate artillery to a point not seen before on the Verdun front. And remember, this is a front known for its artillery. This involved more than 500 heavy guns being positioned on a single mile of front, with a plethora of light guns to back them up. On this tiny piece of front, there would be an even higher concentration than anywhere on Verdun since February the 21st, and on May 3rd, they opened fire. For all of the first day, they continued to fire, and then into the night, and then into the next day. For over two days, the firing continued, and it was a living hell for the French soldiers in the trenches. 
No food or water or any other supplies or any reinforcements could get through to the French defenders, and they were stuck in their trenches as shell after shell crashed into their positions. These positions were already not the best on the front. There had been heavy fighting and shelling on this part of the front for the better part of a couple months. They were already a bit run down before the bombardment started, and by the end they were practically non-existent. To their great credit, the French soldiers did not break, and they did not run. They weathered the storm as best they could, and when the German infantry moved forward, they actually encountered some French resistance. Instead of an easy cakewalk, it instead took days and days of fighting before the Germans could finally claim that Coat 304 was in their hands. On May 8th, it in fact was in their hands, and it represented a practical and symbolic victory for two reasons. The first was simply that around 10,000 Frenchmen died on that hill, trying to keep it out of German hands. The second was that it was the first position on Patan's last line of defense, that one that he established right when he arrived, and it had now been taken by the Germans. The Germans may not have known it, but it was a blow to the French simply because Patan had placed such importance to it when he arrived. It had, however, come at a huge cost for the Germans, far more than they had hoped. But it was theirs, and now the staff of the 5th Army met to consider launching an attack on the East Bank to capitalize on the momentum gained on the other bank. The situation had become more difficult for the Germans on the East Bank, with weather playing a part, and also the French becoming far more bold in their counterattacking. This increase in French counterattacks can be chalked up to the fact that General Neville was now in command, with his subordinate General Mangan also on the scene, and both were known for their constant attacking, as opposed to the more cautious Patan, who was no longer on the scene. The Crown Prince, for the record, was against any more attacking. He was finished with the entire ordeal, and was advocating for a halt to the offensive to both Falkenhayn and Noblesdorf, but they were having none of it. In fact, they wanted the pace of the attacks to increase. By early May, it was clear that the British were going to launch a huge offensive somewhere, maybe along the Somme at some point during the summer. And if the Germans were going to capture Verdun, it had to be now, like like right, right now, because there would not be another chance. Noblesdorf became more and more bold in his attacks that he was ordering, with Falkenhayn pushing him along. The Crown Prince was forced to admit that, quote, if main headquarters order it, I must not disobey, but I will not have it on, as my own responsibility. End quote. The attacks would continue to push forward until the end of May on the West Bank, or at least try to push forward. However, on the East Bank, it would take a little while longer for them to get started, because a disaster had befallen the German troops there on May the 8th, inside Fort Douaumont. Since they had captured the fort, the Germans had used it as sort of a super-stolen, basing troops out of it when they were out of the front lines, and using it as a huge supply depot close to the front lines. From the fort, they could move out and support other areas in the line, or act as a counterattack force. But on the 8th of May, there was suddenly a giant explosion from inside the fort. Almost the entire garrison was killed instantly. Those who were not literally blown to pieces were hit by a blast wave that would explode lungs. It is uncertain what exactly caused the explosion. It was most likely caused by carelessness in the handling of ammunition, although some sources have claimed that it was an accident while German soldiers were brewing coffee. It doesn't really matter what caused it. Why it happened doesn't matter, because many Germans were killed inside. 
Oddly enough, it did not completely destroy the fort as a structure. It was just too dang strong, although it did greatly reduce its usefulness for the Germans. Seeing a possible opening, the French decided to try and recapture the fort a few weeks later on May the 22nd. This was an attack ordered by General Mangan, sometimes called the Butcher. And I'm not joking, his nickname really was the Butcher, although it was a, f- a French nickname. For five days before the attack, the French guns pounded the fort. And by this time, the fort was under some form of artillery fire for over three months, and it was finally starting to show. Back when I was discussing Duamont, I mentioned that artillery would, theoretically, slowly jackhammer through the concrete defenses of the fort, but it would take a monstrous amount of artillery in a very long time. Well, a monstrous amount of artillery had been dropped on the fort over a really long time, and the concrete was slowly being worked through. Even after the explosion, though, and while under the bombardment, the German defenders still put up one hell of a fight. When the French attackers went forward, they actually managed to capture one side of the fort and get a few men inside, but then the German counterattack hit them like a ton of bricks and they were pushed back. The attack had cost 5,500 troops as casualties and another 1,000 taken prisoner. Combined, this represented more than half of the 12,000 men who had went forward in the attack. Such a disaster caused Mangan to be relieved of command, but don't worry though. A man called the Butcher did not get that nickname from a single attack, and he will return to our story very shortly. In Ring of Steel, Alexander Watson quotes a French staff officer who would later write of the French attack that, quote, even the wounded refused to abandon the struggle. As though possessed by devils, they fight on until they fall senseless from loss of blood. A surgeon in a frontline post told me that, in a redoubt at the south part of the fort, of 200 French dead, fully half had more than two wounds. Those he was able to treat seemed utterly insane. They kept shattering war cries, and their eyes blazed, and strangest of all, they appeared indifferent to pain. At one moment, anesthetics run out owing to an impossibility of bringing forward fresh supplies through the bombardment. Arms, even legs, were amputated without a groan. And even afterward, the men seemed not to have felt the shock. They asked for a cigarette or inquired how the battle was going. End quote. Now, I hope I don't have to tell you that that is one hell of a story, and probably only slightly true. And while most of it is an exaggeration, you can see with such flowery language coming out of Verdun how the myth of the fighting there really has taken hold in in the minds of people looking back. With the attack on Douaumont in May, now over on the East Bank, in the three months of fighting since March, the front had shifted less than a thousand yards in either direction. The attacks and defense of May had cost the French around 50,000 casualties along the entire front, bringing their total up to 180,000, and the Germans were only slightly behind. So on the scale of forts at Verdun, Fort Vaux was... It was a quarter the size of Douaumont, and was one of the smallest fortresses in the entirety of the Verdun complex. It only had a single 75mm turret, and it had been destroyed long before the action reached the fort in June. In fact, it had been disabled way back in February. Because of this, there was nothing bigger than a machine gun within the fort when it came under attack. The defense of the fort was under the command of Major Civil Eugene Renault. 
When he arrived to take command near the end of May, he found the fort full to the bursting point, quote, in such numbers that it is extremely difficult to move, and I took a very long time to reach my command post. If an attack materialized, all occupants would be captured before they could defend themselves, end quote. There were around 600 troops in the fort when the siege would begin, instead of the typical garrison of 250. Most of the men were just random stragglers who had lost contact with their normal units, or small groups of runners, stretcher bearers, or signaling units, all sheltering within the fort. You might be thinking that before a siege begins, having more men is a good thing. I made quite the deal out of Duamon not having enough, that's for sure. But having so many more men than expected was a serious downside in this case. The water supply was iffy at best within the fort, and the approaches had not been improved to the point that they were considered protected, which meant that it was hard to get men and more importantly supplies in and out of the fort. The topic of water would be the most critical, though. In the summer heat of Verdun, there was just a single cistern within the fort to supply the water to the garrison. Even with all of these downsides, and with its small size, the fort was still important. What the Germans had found out was that the French structures, even the oldest of the forts, were difficult to deal with because they could stand up to bombardments for long periods of time, and were then easily capable of handily driving off any nearby German attacks. If the Germans were going to push forward in the area, they first had to push through Vaux. Because of the importance of the area, the last of the 5th Army's reserves would go into the attack. The two main actors of this action were not Patan or the Crown Prince, but Neville and Noblesdorf. The attack would be the largest on the East Bank since February the 21st, and it was supposed to sweep over Vaux quickly and move on to Fort Souville, which was just a few miles from the city of Verdun. The German guns would not focus on these two forts, though. Instead, they would focus mainly on Moulinville, which was a fort a bit smaller than Douaumont, which could provide covering fire for the other two forts that were being assaulted. Souville was the main prize. Vaux was just in the way. Because Souville at this point was the nerve center of the entire East Bank defenses. If it could be taken by the Germans, it was likely that a large chunk of the East Bank, maybe all of it, would have to be given over to the Germans. Fortunately for the French, that was not in the cards. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. 
Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. There were, of course, many reasons why this was not in said cards. There always is. And it started with the bombardment. When the bombardment got started for the attack, it was less effective than previous artillery preparations before attacks for a few reasons. The first, of course, was that the French had just gotten used to these type of preparations, and all their troops were more prepared for it. This included the troops inside the forts, who had found that the sound was often the worst part of the bombardment, and other than that, and maybe some vibrations, the troops inside the forts were in little danger. They had never been in much danger, but now they knew it, and they also trusted the concrete above their heads. Another factor that some of the larger German guns were starting to show some serious wear and tear. Unlike the smaller guns, the larger 420 380mm guns could not be easily replaced, and had already fired far more than they were factory rated for. This meant that their shots were erratic at best, and it reduced their ability to hit targets consistently which was important when you're trying to, like, dig through um, fortifications. They also were now experiencing French counter-battery fire, which was taking a serious toll on the largely stationary guns. Even with these problems, though, on June 1st, the troops of the 1st and 7th German divisions moved forward, and they found some quick initial success. They swept aside the French troops in front of them and on both sides of Fort Vaux, The plan was never to straight-up attack the fort on the first day, but instead to capture all of the approaches and partially surround it, and then attack into the fort the next day. Since the attack was already so successful, though, the German general on the spot decided to move his troops forward in a rare night attack to fully envelop the fort, and this was very successful. And so, on the night of June 1st, the siege of Fort Vaux began. The French in the fort had not been idle. Since the very start of the German attack, they had been preparing to defend Fort Vaux. The enlarged garrison was put to work, erecting sandbag barricades at any weak points and preparing in other ways for the attack. When the Germans approached, it would not be anything like Douaumont. In the ditch around Vaux, they were under crippling crossfire from the machine guns in the galleries overlooking them. They tried several different strategies to neutralize these galleries. None of those strategies ended up being successful, and it was only when the machine guns in one of the galleries jammed that the Germans were able to get close enough to it to shove grenades in on the the gun crews. 32 French soldiers would be lost just in that gallery alone. When it came time to deal with the other machine gun gallery, there were even more neutralization tactics tried, including the lowering of sacks of grenades on ropes and then detonating them, 
which did not work and, and apparently caused more German casualties than French casualties. Who would have known that dealing with a giant bag of grenades wasn't a good plan? During all of this time, the Germans were exploring as much of the fort as they could easily explore, and they found a hole in the hallway leading to the remaining machine gun gallery that had been created by artillery shell at some point, and the French had tried to close the hole with sandbags, but the Germans were able to remove them and toss grenades down the hallway. Reynold was forced to order the final gallery abandoned, and with it the last of the fort's outer defenses, just so that the men there would not be cut off from the main fort. The French quickly created a barricade behind them, and this would set the stage for the rest of the fighting inside the fort. The Germans would find a way past a barricade, and the French would just erect another barricade a few feet later, only giving up as much ground as was required. It was a deadly and horrible way to fight. In one instance, the Germans were able to blow open a steel door, once again using hand grenades, they were getting pretty good at this, but were then unable to attack it quick enough to prevent the French from erecting a barricade and positioning a machine gun to defend it. This prevented the Germans from getting inside the fort, but by the second day of fighting, they had it fully surrounded and completely cut off from the rear. The French erected barricade after barricade in the corridors, only to have them destroyed, and then to have to create another. Constantly, grenades were being thrown down these corridors, and machine gun bullets ricocheted off the concrete walls. Oh, and by the way, there were no lights. They were knocked out early in the fighting. So all this was happening in complete darkness. And and oh, by the way, the corridors were just three feet wide and five feet high, so a good portion of the men couldn't even fully stand up. On the top of the fort, the Germans were not exactly enjoying themselves either. They were under constant fire from the French artillery, especially the 155mm turret on Moulinville, which was fulfilling its job perfectly of protecting the other fort that was under attack. At this point, the defenders were still able to communicate with the outside world using carrier pigeons. The first one they sent caused a counterattack which almost made it to the fort, but was driven back just feet from the western side by newly arriving German troops. The Germans then brought up flamethrowers to try and smoke the French out. They arrived and made a quick impact as the fort quickly filled with smoke and flames. The French opened any available vents to try and clear the smoke and slowly regain their composure. It's pretty impressive that in all of the panic caused by the flamethrower attack, all that was lost was about 25 yards of the northwest corridor. And it was shortly after this attack that Reynold would use his last carrier pigeon to send the following message, quote, We are still holding, but relief is imperative. Communicate with us by Morse Blinker from Sueville, which does not reply to our calls. This is my last pigeon, End quote. The bird only made it into the air after a few attempts, having been almost killed from smoke inhalation during the attack. And when it arrived in the rear, it would die shortly after delivering its message. And it would later be given the Legion (laughs) d'Or. The bird only made it into the air after a few attempts, having been almost killed from smoke inhalation. When it arrived in the rear, it would die shortly after delivering its message. And it would later be given the Legion d'Honneur. It now sits in the Paris Museum, a tribute to its bravery. After learning that Vaux did not have any more pigeons, the commander of Fort Seville began to utilize his blinker to flash messages to Reynal, most of them encouraging. He spoke of another attack being prepared to relieve the fort, 
This was all well and good, but it was right around now that Raynal learned that the garrison was pretty much out of water. The gauge that had been in the cistern was found to be incorrect, and had been reporting far more water than was actually present. This was a problem, but it was also a problem for the future. Because the next day, the German troops tried to put a mine under one of the walls to blow it up, and Reynal was able to communicate with Souville using the blinker again, and artillery fire was brought down on them. But this would be the last major success for the troops at Vaux. Two important things would happen on the 5th of June, other than the mine thing. First, the blinker and the blinker crew would be destroyed by a direct hit from a German artillery shell. And the second was that the last latrine was lost to the Germans. On the night of the 5th, the last of the water was distributed to the men, less than a quarter of a pint per person. That's like half a cup. And this to men who had had none for 24 hours of fighting. Reynal was able to set up an ad hoc blinker to send his last message. Quote, Imperative be relieved and receive water tonight. I'm reaching the end of my tether. End quote. At 2 a.m., the relief attack started, and the defenders could hear it overhead. At 3 a.m., a small French force was spotted approaching the fort, but it was soon pinned down by the Germans and forced to surrender. For over three days of fighting, the garrison had received almost no water, and early on the morning of June the 7th, they were forced to surrender. Three French soldiers moved out from behind the barricade, bearing a white flag, and carried the offer of surrender. One German correspondent would describe them as, quote, the living image of desolation. The next day, Reynal would meet with the crown prince, who would be full of praise for him and his men, and for their heroic defense. They had suffered a hundred casualties, but the Germans had lost almost 3,000 men trying to take the fort. It was a brave defense that would go down as one of the greatest stories of the entire campaign. But nonetheless, in the end, Vaux fell. And now Fort Souville was the only obstacle between the Germans and Verdun. Neville wanted to counterattack the Germans at Vaux immediately, even though the previous attacks had failed so catastrophically. Most of the generals on the scene were against this, but Neville demanded that it take place. Two regiments of a North African division were prepared for the attack. They moved up to the front line, even though they had just recently been taken off the line to rest and refit. Then, right before they attacked, they were hit by a massive German barrage that was in preparation for the Germans' own attack. This is pretty much the worst possible moment for units to get bombarded, since so many troops were overcrowding the front lines. Even with the huge casualties that they suffered from the shelling, French soldiers still tried to go forward, and they were massacred. Neville instantly began preparing for another attack, blaming the poor timing of the German artillery as the sole cause for the previous failure, but Batan stepped in and gave him a direct order to halt the attacks. With the failure of this attack, the saga of Vaux was over. The French would loudly declare that Vaux was not important, that it never had been, but the truth on the ground was different. The Germans now looked to take their last prize, Fort Souville, and they began to prepare for another attack, hopefully their last attack, which we will cover next episode.